0: Hello everyone, and welcome to an episode of My Perspective, Stories of Recovery Experiences. And my name is Malcolm Chatt. Back in the 1960s and early 1970s, Vietnam was involved in a bloody civil war. When that war ended in about 1975, large numbers of people left Vietnam and travelled as refugees to other parts of the world, including Australia. One of those people who fled Vietnam for a new life in Australia was the mother of our guest today, Daniel Angus. Welcome, Daniel. It's great to have you here.
1: Great to be with you, Malcolm.
0: Daniel is a fellow psychologist. He's currently employed as a supervisor with the Better Health Generation. He also works in private practice. Daniel, you and I go back a number of years. I think our paths first crossed in 2008 when we worked for the same organization as Provisionally Registered Psychologists. Isn't that right?
1: That's right, Malcolm. Yeah. Uh, When we were providing
0: uh, support to job seekers. And then we we left there, not at the same time. (laughs) um, And we worked together at another organization, an NGO in Western Sydney, where I was working in a number of services and you were brought on to run a headspace site and now we're working together again third time lucky at the the better health generation that's right yeah i'd like to ask you some questions um firstly just about your clinical experience Mm. what broadly speaking has that experience entailed
1: well yeah thanks malcolm um you know i suppose my first dive into mental health was with the Housing and Support Initiative, even before we met. I was certainly there for a few years, and then I moved into what they called the Wentworth Young People's Program in Emie Plains, where there were young people who experienced a comorbidity. And that was that—that that was university in itself, if you like, Mark. And I learned so much from those young guys in that program. And then uh, from there, I went into corrective services, uh, where I was supporting offenders who were transitioning uh, from jail back into the community and that saw me working with also some sex offenders in Campbelltown and Long Bay before eventually finding my, uh, self with you and I think that uh, this was really uh, you know one of the highlights for me because I don't know if you remember American but you did that program the Macquarie Fields program you remember that?
0: Oh, well, Daniel of course I remember <laughs> How good it was, was awesome that wasn't it?
1: Oh yeah I I think that this was one of the highlights for me, uh, you know, working with young people in that residential program. At that point, I started to learn actually that there was a lot more that people could do. In You know, employment itself was an effective intervention, perhaps even more, inf- more effective, uh, wouldn't you say, Malcolm, than uh, some of the counselling interventions uh, that
0: we might yeah. uh, engage with, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then what did you do after you well, I- left there?
1: So I heard a, um, I heard, actually, I think you told me about the role, Malcolm. You told me about Headspace Penrith opening. I might have. Uh, of course, Malcolm, I, uh, I, I was born in Penrith, Darragh country here uh, at the foot of the Blue Mountains. I've lived here all my life. And it really was a dream uh, to be able to contribute to my community here in Penrith. And so I was there to open up a brand new service for Parramatta Mission. And, and so from day one, we started seeing hundreds and then thousands of young people through the doors at Headspace Penrith. But there, we also then um, were uh, putting on the individual placement support program, you know, the, uh, the IPS employment program. Then we did uh, a few years later, the Headspace early psychosis program. And then I moved to Headspace Mount Druitt, uh, where I started to manage the HET program there and the primary care program. So Eight years, almost, and uh, really, uh, again, some of the best times that I've had in my career. Uh, Really, really affirming, really rewarding time.
0: And since then, what have you been doing?
1: Uh, So more recently, I was uh, at Canteen uh, as the National Psychosocial Support Manager. I've also been an official visitor, which has been a really, really important role for me. It's a role under the Mental Health Act that visits declared mental health facilities in New South Wales. And your role as both an advocate, uh, but also as a check and balance, if you like, at uh, going into any declared facility, meeting with consumers, talking with staff, and then reporting through the principal official visitor back to the minister. Uh, I also sit on the panel with the uh, Department of Justice's Serious Young Offenders Review Panel. I do work with CARI, which is an Aboriginal out-of-home care service. Of course, I'm um, currently deputy commissioner for the Mental Health Commission in New South Wales. Uh, Do some private practice work here. And of course, now I'm here again with you, Malcolm, at the Better Health Generation.
0: Well, can I just say that I'm I'm almost exhausted listening to that (laughs) breadth of experience that you've got. I don't know how you do it, but I think it's just an awesome example of the depth of experience that we are lucky enough to be able to apply in psychology it's actually a good example of the types of some of the services that can be applied within the better health generation as well. So thank you for that story of your clinical experience. I just want to take you back. And I spoke briefly at the introduction about your mother's story, or at least some of it. What was that story and how did it influence you and your later experiences as a psychologist? Yeah.
1: You know, this would be a movie. You know, I always feel like this would be a great movie. Well, I don't know if great's the word, but it'd be certainly a blockbuster movie. Uh, my mum and her brothers and sisters, my grandmother, they fled Saigon following the fall of uh, Saigon. So they lived in the south of Vietnam. And, um, and and following the fall of Saigon, my grandmother, I don't know how she did it, you know, Malcolm, but she found the money. She found a way uh, to get my family on a really tiny rickety fishing boat where at night they all snuck out and uh, they were able to escape Um, but uh, they they didn't escape scot-free they were actually spotted and they were shot at fired at and uh, which uh, led to the boat almost sinking on quite a few occasions and so they were needing to patch up the boat and all of those kinds of things and and you know, this was uh, really perhaps the start of a very, very long journey uh, for them before they reached any kind of safety. And so my mum told me how, you know, there were people at times falling over the side of the boat. There were occasions where I, I was somebody who thought the pirates was only in movies, Markham, but my mum would say that there were literally pirates who had stopped their boat during their journey, boarded and did some horrible things and throughout that my mum survived so did my aunties and uncles and my grandma. Anyway they made it to the coast just off Indonesia where their boat sunk and they were then rescued by the coast guard in Indonesia who brought them to the Indonesian uh, refugee camp uh, one of the islands there uh, where they stayed for months uh, in a camp until eventually they found their way to Australia.
0: And they came to Sydney. Is that right?
1: That's right. They uh, so by by fluke, really. They, they you know there were people from my mum says there were people from you know England and America and mm. other countries interviewing families, and uh, really by luck they didn't actually know very much about Australia at the time. They just wanted to go virtually anywhere that was safe, that they weren't in a camp. They were they had a place to live uh, that they were able to settle, and Australia interviewed them. And they said, yes, straight away. And they got on a, a flight and they found their way to Sydney. Some of my family actually were in Melbourne. So some people were s- separated. Don't know why, actually. but uh, Some went to Melbourne and most of my family were here in Sydney.
0: So Daniel, years passed and your mother met your father and they had a family. Yeah. What was it like for your mother having lived through, through those experiences? And what did you... Observe. What did you notice, and what sort of an effect, if any, did it have on you?
1: Well, certainly, my dad worked a lot, and so I was often home with my mum. And I was so I'm the eldest in my family. And actually, my name, uh, Malcolm, my middle name is Nam. And so, uh, you know, one of my cousins was named Veer. I was named Nam, uh, and and so I was my mum's eldest. And so I spent a lot of time with my mum, and I could see that uh, these experiences for her, had really impacted her. You know, she was very anxious at lots of things. Mm. Uh, she didn't leave the house very much. Uh, she, was, she definitely had uh, trouble sleeping at times and all kinds of things. I mean, you, you might imagine that these experiences don't just leave you overnight. And whilst you might be grateful for a secure a spot in the world to lie down and uh, not be physically in danger, often
0: in your head, you're still in danger. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're explaining it really, really well. Now you you are bilingual.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, not in the academic sense, uh, Malcolm. I know how to speak colloquial uh, Vietnamese in a way. And and so uh, not more than my mum. And my mum came here to Australia when she was just uh, 17, 18 years old. So, uh, you know, I know her version of Vietnamese. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> it does, yeah, it does. <laughs> And so that became very helpful for your mother, I think, because you would accompany your mother as she would visit doctors and you would be there with her during appointments. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So,
1: so often I'd come with my mom or uh, sometimes she'd tell me about how they went or uh, you know something like that but it's a good point that you bring that up um, because it's something that really impacted me and uh, was a reason for why I really wanted to come into psychology in a way you know my mum was often referred to psychologists or psychiatrists and she'd attend these appointments and you know I'd, 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 I'd attend with her my mum was is yeah, not was but is a very very polite polite woman you know she'll she'll smile and she'll nod she's you know, very courteous. And, and so it felt like, um, you know, she would uh, agree with everything that was being said. And then she would, um, she'd leave the appointment and she'd look at me and she'd shake her head and she'd basically say, that was rubbish, you know, <laughs> in, in other words, other than that, you know, and, and sometimes uh, we wouldn't get beyond one or two appointments with a psychologist.
0: Yeah. But, why, but why was that? What was going on with the psychologist or the psychiatrist or other um, health professional?
1: Yeah. I, think, I think people were, at least the ones that we saw, not everybody was like that, but certainly the ones that have st- stay in my mind. It, it seemed like they were not that interested in my mum or her story or what had happened to her and that they were more concerned with telling her what they thought she should be doing. Here are some medications. Why didn't you take it? Why haven't you taken it? You should take this. Uh, Maybe you should get a job. And for some reason, everyone wanted her to be an interpreter. Uh, They thought this is easy because she could speak Vietnamese. She can now learn how to speak English. So there is an easy win. Let's get her an interpreter job, but she didn't want to do that at all. And I don't think anybody really, seemed to ask her, well, what do you And she loved poetry. She loved music. Uh, she was you know, still in high school uh, when she was in Vietnam. She had to leave the country where she was born, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that anyone took the time to just not be so preoccupied with curing her and getting her on off their case. I, I'm not sure what they were thinking really, but it felt that way. And it just didn't seem to, nobody seemed to connect with her. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So it sounds to me like the clinicians were adopting this approach of being the expert, of being the clinician and almost sitting or even perhaps standing on high. And as you said, dispensing treatment, being quite directive, telling your mother what it is that she should be doing, what she ought to be doing as if they knew best. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And you know, the thing is Malcolm is that we all have insider knowledge, you you know, we all have uh, knowledge to contribute. Maybe is a better way of saying it. And of course there is uh, valuable knowledge from a clinical point of view, but at the same time, they weren't connecting with my mum and they weren't listening, you you know, maybe I'll say it this way, you know, like both of us have gone through uh, years of training to be a psychologist, but you know, my mum, she went through 20 years of a degree in her experiences do you know what i mean and so yep. it was like she knew it and she was going to be the expert at knowing her experiences and also potentially the expert at knowing what was going to work better for her not somebody who had met her for an hour or two hours now certainly they had ideas that they could contribute and had they been able to connect more i think that that would have been much better uh, you know session but it just didn't seem, you know, it, it just didn't connect.
0: So it's almost as if they never even bothered to ask her opinion about things, her opinion about herself and her experiences and what it was that she had been doing for herself.
1: Yeah. They, I think that they would assume that, you know, when my mum hadn't done something or hadn't followed through with something, that somehow that was a sign of her not being motivated or her not being compliant with treatment or something like that. And it wasn't that at all. Uh, There were so many other reasons for that. And I felt like there wasn't this way of wanting to understand my mum's perspective or my mum's, my mum's way of thinking about those
0: things. So let's bring this, let's tie this all together as it were. And, and, and fast forward (coughs) uh, to the time when you start practicing as a, as a psychologist and you come across what is referred to as the recovery model yeah first of all what's your definition of it what does recovery mean to you
1: yeah well you know i think that there are all kinds of definitions of recovery and i think it's different for everyone you know i i i was thinking about this term and i remember that last year i my computer broke down right And I had to take it into Harvey Norman or somewhere to uh, get it fixed. And they were talking to me about recovering my files because I was really nervous I'd lost everything, right? And so there was, in the one sense, uh, there was this notion of recovery being, you know, the restoration of uh, files or the restoration of the computer so that I could use it functionally (laughs) in, in the way that I wanted to. Or, you know, I know that when we might... Uh, study in the context of a, the clinical space that we might uh, define uh, recovery in a medical model as maybe clinical recovery as, as, as like uh, being free of, of symptoms or something. But, but I think that recovery is more than that. Like my mom is more than her symptoms and her diagnosis. I think that for my mom, recovery and for me, for all of us, I think that as human beings, I think recovery is about, is unique to each person and that it is about what that person sees as recovery. And actually, I wanted to tell you, because I learned about this, uh, this approach, I don't know how well known, I learned it through the, uh, the official visitors program. It's called chimes. Have you heard of that, uh, Malcolm?
0: No, I haven't. Um, Do do you, do, do
1: you have chimes in your garden? Do I have wind chimes? You know, C H I M E S. Wind chimes. Do you have them in uh, in your garden that's a, somewhere.
0: That's a very <laughs> interesting question, Daniel. I could answer it this way by saying that I would like to have chimes <laughs> in my garden, but yeah. I am denied that particular pleasure oh. by by someone very <laughs> close to me. Okay. There's a story there, but I won't go any further than I'm that. Oh sure.
1: Well, the reason why I say that is because you asked me for my definition. Maybe I'll give you this uh, this definition from uh, myself, which I, I kind of resonate with. And I, I like the notion of chimes. Firstly, uh, the word itself is about this musical kind of wind chime instrument that you put up in the garden. It's very calming and uh, it's, it's thousands of years old, uh, you know, as a technology, right, used historically to ward off evil spirits or... Um, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, as a calming agent or for good chi in, in, in some belief systems. Anyway, CHIME stands for something. And I, I wish I knew who came up with this, but it has this acronym, C-H-I-M-E-S. And so to define recovery, I would define recovery, well, at least in my way from this acronym of CHIME, C being about connection. So this is about connecting with your friends, your family, people around you. And I think that that was, at times, so much more important to my mum than taking medication. And I'd say, for example, that even though medication might be reasonably affordable, if uh, it was going to be between buying f- fruit and vegetables for our meal or taking medication, you know what? My mum would choose a connection with her family and she would prioritise the family over herself. And so there is this notion of connection in, in, in recovery. And then you've got the hope and optimism, which is the H going into identity and how you view yourself as an I. And M was all about meaning and the meaning that you make about something. And, you know, I I want to tell you, I I had this great teacher of mine in corrections who told me about this, where I had the privilege of meeting this Aboriginal man when I was working at corrections who had said that he had been really distressed because he'd been hearing uh, the voice of this ghost in one of the uh, wings of the centre we were at. And of course for him he had he couldn't sleep it was going on for weeks and he consulted with me and an aboriginal elder and some uh, a psychiatrist and he'd been diagnosed with psychosis and given medication even a gp thought he'd had tinnitus but he was convinced that it was a ghost and anyway uh, we decided uh, with an aboriginal elder here to put on a smoking ceremony you know what malcolm within a few days he'd stopped hearing the ghost now On the one hand, we might say that maybe this is where the serical kicked in, but you know, that wasn't what he thought happened. It was more important to him that he had been able to resolve this issue in an empowered way through his beliefs, that he believed that there was a ghost and that the ghost was put to rest through this process of the smoking ceremony. And I think that the last two of being M&E, being meaning and empowerment, is how I probably best describe it from my perspective.
0: That's excellent, Daniel. Thank you so much for that. I've no, I'd actually not heard of that acronym, although I have heard of all of those concepts being part of the recovery model. I want yeah. to add, I just want to add one other concept to that, which is also, or can be part of the recovery model, yeah. and that is the concept of resilience. Yeah. What do you, what do you think your mother has taught you about <laughs> that?
1: Yeah, <laughs> so much so much right I, I want to try and explain it with a word that i learned from i don't know if this is a translated word it's an aboriginal word actually Karakin. do you remember uh we, we we were looking at naming a new service in western sydney or in, in sydney a few years ago and i would consulted with some aboriginal elders and i, I just love this word Karakin because it was about this notion of a seed growing through you know those seed pods uh that are so hard that until it's in a bushfire until the fire softens, the, you know, I can't, I'm not a scientist, Malcolm, I can't describe it as, <laughs> as well. But, you know, there's seed pods that uh, spring to life, you know, after going through fire. And there's this notion of, you know, that I've certainly learned from my mum that, that you can get great growth out of great destruction, and great tragedy, and great trauma, that uh, those experiences often teach you a great deal about who you are, your identity as a person, But it also shows you that you can survive those things. And seeing my mum every day reminds me of that. And seeing her, um, you know, getting through every day, uh, you know, she had to learn a new language. Uh, She had to learn a new way of living, new streets, new everything, right? And uh, I think that, you know, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but it certainly taught me a great deal about resilience.
0: That's exactly what I was getting at, Daniel. And uh, perhaps even more because your mother... Um, also had to learn and deal with a new culture. So much would have been so different for her. And yet she's come through and she's proven herself to be resilient. And what a wonderful life lesson for you and actually for for us all. From all of these experiences, those that you've observed in your mum and indeed with clients and also your own personal experiences, if you could give some advice to a clinician now about recovery and how they might become more recovery-focused, what would that advice be?
1: Oh, I don't know if I've got enough time to say all this, but but certainly I, I, I can say so much on this topic, uh, Malcolm. You know, firstly, I'd say listen and connect. I don't know about you, Malcolm, but I know that especially early in my career and even, even now sometimes that uh, and maybe even now in this interview you know, that you're... Uh, it's it can be really hard to be actively present and not be thinking about the next thing that you want to say and asking the next question and i think that sometimes it is important it's an art i think to learn how to be present to be there in that moment with that person who's in front of you seeking your support so listening being curious in them wanting to know more uh, wanting to hear that person's story a story i think that malcolm it's about collaboration and uh, co-research in, in this in this line there was a uh, there was a, a few years ago when i was working with this young woman at headspace where we'd come up with chili treatment did i ever tell you about that malcolm no no <laughs> it's it's a 30 second well i don't know how long it'll go for but i really this this idea about co so this this young woman had been through so many different programs and had been uh, harming herself and her you know, I remember she came to see me in the private practice, you know, we, we have private practice at Headspace and I was doing private practice work in one of the other centers. And, and she, um, uh, she said, look, I, I, I didn't really want to come here. It wasn't my idea, but my, um, my parents just, I try. And I think this is one of the tragedies that I'd experienced with my mom and so many other people. That if you have a bad experience with helping professionals, sometimes you just don't ever go back, but she did. And uh, I was, I was just blown away that she had maybe partly brought there by her parents, but she made it in. Anyway, when she started to talk to me about some of the reasons for why she was harming herself, we started to work out that it had something to do with pain and that pain was able to uh, reset herself, right? And so uh, through this co-research together, uh, we discovered and we learned a great deal about chili. And it turns out, Malcolm, that at barbecues galore, there is a, there is a world record Guinness. It's in the Guinness book of record, right? As the world's hottest chili powder. And, uh, and so what we decided to do when we looked at pain and all of those things, and we talked to parents, we brought the GP and we said, well, actually, you know what, what, why don't we all try together having a, a teaspoon of this chili powder, um, but we could control it together. Right. So uh, we'd have the capacity to, manage the impact of it through you know milk or something like that and you know it worked so well for her and I think this is the idea that and actually whenever she needed to harm herself to stop the horrible thoughts that she was having in her mind that for her having tried everything that she'd come up with a creative approach that perhaps nobody had ever thought of I don't know but it was unique to her and it was chili, and it was the idea of using chili to reset her system, which allowed us to continue some really good work together. And I think that from my perspective, it was about being creative, about being collaborative, about uh, working together in an alliance that knew that, hey, medication wasn't the only option. It was an important one, but it wasn't the only one. And then other things might also contribute here, that they had knowledge to contribute to. uh, To know that you're going to bring your lived history, uh, your professional expertise and knowledge, but that so will the person that you're supporting. And like I said right at the start, that I think that the people that we support are experts in themselves, that they've done a degree, if you, I don't know if that's a reasonable analogy, but they've learned about themselves, they've brought their own experiences. So don't forget that, tap into that. Like, you know, I don't know if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's what you're getting at there, I don't know.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The way that I've often described it, Daniel, is that the solution is there between the clinician, the client, and any other individual that's working with the client. The solution is there and it doesn't sit, it doesn't belong necessarily with, with just one person. And quite often it's the task of the clinician to work collaboratively with the client and with others so that the solution can be found. It can be unearthed. And for me, one of the advantages, and speaking almost selfishly as a clinician, one of the advantages of that is that it means I don't have to have all of the answers. As it were, it takes some pressure off me because I'm not the person who is the only expert i can rely on this resource that's in the room yeah the client and quite often in fact most of the time they're the ones with the answers they're the ones who know what's going to work and as you've also said recovery is such an individual thing it can only be done with the individual
1: yeah
0: daniel that's all that we've got time for today I have to say, I have really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story and your mother's story. I know that you've shared your mother's story with her permission. Yeah. So I think it's just a wonderful story to have heard today. Um, and I thank you for sharing it. Thank you very much, Malcolm. I appreciate that.